Our passage this morning is Jude verses 5 through 16. Perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So I'll need you to bear with me as this is going to be perhaps a unique sermon. Before we dive in, let's pray that once again the Spirit would attend to the preaching and hearing of the Word, because we can't do this on our own. So let's pray. Holy God, we set aside our efforts, our accomplishments, our brilliance, our intelligence, our knowledge. We set aside all these things that we think make us smart interpreters of your Word, and we submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit and the words of life that are before us. We pray that we would not be natural men and women as we come to this text, but that by your Spirit we would see the deep things and truths, things into which angels long to look. By your Spirit who is with us, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and read Jude, starting in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 16. Now this is the body of the letter. The last couple weeks we've looked at the introduction and we've looked at a... Uh, His thesis, so far they've not been so difficult, but now we jump into the difficult part. This is the body of the letter. We'll be covering verses 5 through 16, so hear God's word. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. What makes Jude so difficult, primarily, is the fact that he quotes and references at least twice 
sources that are not in the Bible. He references these texts that we'll call extra-biblical, meaning they come from outside the Bible. Now, some people say if Jude is going to use these sources, such as a quote from the book of Enoch, either the book of Enoch was indeed inspired and we should include it in our Bible. Other people say, well, it's not inspired, and therefore Jude's use of it means that Jude's book should not be in our Bibles. And indeed, that was a popular opinion for some time. But I don't think either one of those is the approach we need to take. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit guided the writers of scriptures. We believe that as Jude was using these sources known to his people, using examples that he knew they would understand, he did not necessarily condone the entire texts as inspired or truthful, but instead, by the Spirit's guidance, was able to find the elements of truth in it and use them and apply them truthfully in an inspired sense here in the book of Jude. The apostle, as one theologian says, the apostle could distinguish the truths from the errors in these extra-biblical books, and thus his use of a non-canonical writing is perfectly in keeping with the inspiration and inerrancy of his letter. Now, we will come back to this, especially when we get to the specific first Enoch quote at the end, but hopefully we can let some of that fog part and see through and understand what Jude is saying by the use of these quotes. Because in fact, it's not a whole lot unlike Paul quoting from the pagan poets and philosophers as he uses things that they said to make a true biblical point as he argued there at the Areopagus in Athens. What Jude is doing here, he really sets up three cases. He is a good middle school student who has a thesis and three supports. The thesis was last week. The thesis was this, verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to prove that these are ungodly people who are perverting the grace of God and have due punishment coming, which was written about long ago. He's going to make that point with three cases. And in each case, he's going to reference an Old Testament or an Old Testament era extra biblical example. At least one. Jude really likes his threes. So you'll see that this comes in a lot of triplets. But as we look at these three cases, I've given them these loose titles. First of all, we'll look at the case of the dreamers. The case of the dreamers. That comes from verses 5 through 10. And then we'll look at the case of the murderers. In verses 11 through 13. And then the case of the boasters. In verses 14 through 16. The dreamers, the murderers, and the boasters. As we read through this, we will see the condemnation that these Old Testament and Old Testament era examples deserved. And Jude is saying, these false teachers in your midst right now deserve that exact same condemnation. And it was written long ago of these old false teachers, and it is true also of today's false teachers, says Jude. So let's look at the case of the dreamers in verses 5 through 10. What these... Old Testament examples share 
with the false teachers of the day is that they are spiritualizing and bringing in spiritual approval to justify their sinful actions, their defilement of the flesh. They claim God's blessings on these things that will, in fact, be punished with eternal fire. And the three examples that Jude calls out are, first of all, the Israelites in the wilderness. This comes from the book of Exodus. It's an allusion to chapter 6 through 14, where the uh, Israelites were led out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Jude tells us Jesus led them out of Egypt in verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's saying to this, Jude is saying to his readers, be careful. Because just because you are a part of Israel that was led through the Red Sea, if you do not believe, you will be destroyed. Their sin is that they did not believe. You'll remember their carnal comfort was more important to them than the promises of God because they were more worried about being hungry and the sun being hot than they were about God's presence and God's promise in the promised land. They did not believe, so Jude tells us Jesus destroyed them. That is, they died in the wilderness and they did not receive the promise of the land. Jude is saying, watch out. So-called Christians, watch out because belonging to the right community, being circumcised in the Old Testament or being baptized in the New Testament does not guarantee that you are exempt from judgment. You must believe in Jesus. And then he continues with angels. Now, this reference in verse 6 is one of the difficult ones. Jude says in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Angels who left their proper dwelling. There are two main worlds of thought on this one, and we cannot with confidence, say that one is true over the other. For uh, the most prominent view for most of the church history has been that this is referring to the prehistoric fall of the angels with Satan. Those who, like Satan, wanted to usurp God's authority and they wanted more power than they had been given and they wanted to overthrow God's reign. The other option is a reference back to Genesis chapter 6 through the book of First Enoch. Because First Enoch, if Jude is using language from First Enoch, which it seems likely, if he's using language from First Enoch, that is a summary of Genesis 6, and in Genesis 6 is the story of the Nephilim. And so what some would say is that Jude is referring to these angels who stepped out of their proper place and had sexual relations with human women and thus bore the Nephilim. So whether Jude is referring to the angels who prehistorically with Satan rebelled against God's authority or the angels who rebelled against God's authority by stepping out of their proper bounds, the point is they denied the boundaries that God had set for them. They were not content with God's rule. Their proper dwellings were not good enough for them, as Jude says. And Jude makes it quite clear, even these angels will be punished. Judgment is coming even for angels. 
Specifically, Jude tells us he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, these angels, until the judgment of the great day. And the judgment of that great day is going to be far worse than anything they've endured even to this day. And Jude's point in using this reference is to say, watch out, Christians. Watch out that you do not try to throw off the good, loving boundaries, the positions that God has given you, the authority that God has given you. And don't follow leaders who do cast off these boundaries. He uses another example, Sodom and Gomorrah. This here is a reference back to Genesis 19. Jude tells us Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexually immoral, excuse me, sexual immorality, and they pursued unnatural desire. And of course, this is consistent with Sodom and Gomorrah's reputation for their homosexual acts and their other sexual perversions as they sought sex with angels who appeared as men and instead took Lot's daughters. Jude says that these acts are defilement of the flesh. And the punishment that is due for this is a punishment of eternal fire. Now, these are hard things to preach on. These are not fun things to talk about. We don't like to talk about judgment. But if we don't know what our sins deserve, we won't know why it matters to run to our Savior. Jude talked about those people, the Israelites, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's going to talk about these people. He even uses that phrase, these people. Now, when you hear somebody say these people, it's not usually very friendly. And indeed, Jude is not using it in a friendly sense. He is calling out these false teachers, saying these people are just as bad as those people. Because he says in verse 8, in the same way, yet in the same manner, these people also. And what did these people do? It wasn't necessarily that they were led out of Egypt like the Israelites. It's not that they stepped out of heaven like the angels did, nor that they were engaged specifically in homosexual acts. But in the same way that those Old Testament people were set against God, these false teachers are set against God. They rely on their dreams, verse 8 says. They rely on their dreams and defile the flesh. Dreams are not just fancies. They're not just things that you want. If you say you had a dream, that is saying that this is a God-given justification, a revelation that justifies their actions. And so what they were doing was saying, we have these dreams from God, spiritual revelation, this new input from heaven that is totally contradictory to the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints. And so they are using these dreams that they claim they had to justify the defilement of the flesh. And this reminds us how important it is that we don't follow cleverly devised myths, that we don't let our dreams and our personal whims drive what we do because we do what Jude tells us in verse 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is no new, never, new revelation. We have the truth of God in the scriptures. These people relying on their dreams defiled the flesh and they rejected authority. Just like the Israelites were rejecting the authority of Moses, just like the angels rejected God's authority, and just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah rejected God's standards for sexuality. 
And so rejecting authority, they set themselves as their authority and they are doing exactly what Jude said in verse four. They are denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They want to be in charge. They want to be able to say what's right and wrong. And they say, well, if I feel like it, I should do it. That's a message that we are all too familiar with in this country. But watch out because there's judgment for that kind of living and thinking. And then Jude says, these people blaspheme the glorious ones. They follow their dreams. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. This word blasphemy is is a little bit misleading. Blaspheme more correctly means, if it's directed at God, that word blaspheme carries that weight, yes. But if it's directed at anybody other than God, it carries a sense of a slanderous judgment. So really what these false teachers are doing, they are casting slanderous judgments against these glorious ones. Now to explain this, Jude dives into yet another example from a non-biblical text. He goes on a, a brief tangent that is relevant to explain what it means that they are blaspheming the glorious ones. And he goes to this uh, source called the Testament of Moses. This is an old document that no longer exists. Nobody ever thought this was inspired. But he's using this story that was known to his readers, a cultural understanding, of when the archangel Michael, quite a powerful person, came face to face with Satan. Now, if there's anyone in the created order who ought to be judged, it's Satan, right? If anybody is deserving of a slanderous judgment, it is Satan. The archangel Michael might be a good prospect for being that judge because he is the great angel and he is one of the rulers, as Bible tells us. If it weren't for this fact, God alone is the judge. Even the archangel Michael has no authority to judge even Satan because God alone is the judge. In this example that Jude gives, Michael knows this. And instead of casting judgment on Satan, what he does he says, the Lord rebuke you. Unlike the angels who stepped out of heaven wanting to usurp God's authority, the archangel Michael knows his place and does not try to do what only God can do. He does not cast judgment when it is only God's to cast. And this quote that Michael utters, according to this extra biblical text, is a quote from the Bible. In Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, the Lord rebuke you. And indeed, that is the Lord's proper place to cast that judgment. And that's what Michael refers to. Jude is saying that the false teachers of his day, in parallel with Michael, they seem to be up against some spiritual force. Glorious ones. Now, whether glorious ones refers to angels who are still glorified or if it's angels who have fallen, it is still a reference to those who are superior, those who are powerful. Some think that Jude is referring to the false teachers slandering, casting judgments against demons when really they had no authority to cast judgment on anybody. Some say that they're casting judgments against angels. Even then they have no authority to cast judgment on angels and they're trying to do so by their own authority. What authority do they even have? 
Jude says they don't even understand these things. They, they slanderously judge these spiritual things and these spiritual beings that they don't understand. They're not even knowledgeable. And instead, what is it that drives them to cast these judgments? It's their animalic instincts. Base desires. No heavenly understanding. Despite the dreams that they confess to have seen, they're defiling the flesh and casting judgments by their base, fleshly, worldly, sensual lusts. Can you imagine a belief system and a way of life driven by whatever I feel like, by whatever I desire, by whatever I think is best with no spiritual understanding? Thank God for rescuing us from such a way of thinking. And we're reminded very particularly in Romans 12, Paul says to the Romans, the church in Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That doesn't mean you and I have the right to dole out a little bit of judgment now and save the rest for God. God does all the judging. We have the right to offer forgiveness and patience and let God be the judge. What Jude is saying, these false teachers are going to receive the exact same judgment that all these other examples have received. Just as God is the one to judge Satan, so will he be the judge of the false teachers because they take the place of God, even though they're ignorant. They will be destroyed as the Israelites were. They will be left in chains and gloomy darkness as the angels were, and they will suffer a punishment of eternal fire. That's the case of the dreamers. What about the case of the murderers? Remember, Judas saying, these are ungodly people. He just gave all that support to prove how ungodly they are and that they deserve judgment. Here's his second point. Here's his second support case. This comes from verses 11 through 13. Again, what he's doing is comparing the false teachers to Old Testament examples. This time, all three come straight from the Old Testament. And he's highlighting how dangerous the teachings and these actions are for the people around the false teachers. You know how poisonous a bad leader can be. Not only do they sin, but they try to drag away the faithful people with them. So Jude says, look at those people, these Old Testament people. And then he'll look again at these people, the false teachers. So those people are Cain, Balaam, and Korah. These are listed very briefly as the way of Cain, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. When you think of Cain, you probably think of the story of Cain killing Abel, his brother, because he was an insincere, he approached God insincerely with his offering. He wasn't offering his best. He was a lazy, selfish uh, offerer He's also a murderer. The false teachers are murderers of the souls of those whom they influence. Again, Jude, in comparing them, is not necessarily saying they have literally killed anybody, but they have killed the souls or are trying to kill the souls of those whom they influence. And according to tradition that Jude's hearers may have been very familiar with, Cain was known as a skeptic. So Jude may also be condemning Cain's skepticism. Someone who rejects God's authority. Someone who casts slanderous judgments. Someone who's a false teacher. 
So perhaps that's also what Jude has in mind as he's accusing these false teachers. He also refers to Balaam's error. You remember Balaam in the the case of the talking donkey. Error is the same word as planet, same word as wanderer. So Balaam was a wanderer. He's known for his greed and he's known for his wavering loyalty to the Lord. And the false teachers also are obsessed with gain, it says here. Jude reminds us they're trying to get whatever they can get out of their loyalty to God. It's not true loyalty at all. They're teaching whatever scratches the itching ears of the people who will pay them money. They're greedy and they will do whatever it takes for gain. And he refers to Korah's rebellion. This comes from Numbers chapter 16. Korah specifically was a man who led a rebellion against Moses with 250 followers in the wilderness. He had a real authority problem. You may have heard people say, I have a problem with authority. Well, so did Korah. And here's what happened. God punished them by swallowing them up in the earth. That's what the Bible teaches us about Korah. And the culture of the day also understood Korah to be the classic example of the antinomian heretic. The guy who said, laws don't matter. What God has given Moses, those laws are irrelevant. Casting off the law left and right. And then so perhaps Jude is condemning that antinomian approach yet again here in the reference to Korah's rebellion. But then he turns his attention again. Those are those people. But these people, in your midst, dear readers, these people, he gives six images that are striking. I don't know if they struck you as we read through this text earlier, but they are striking descriptions of these false teachers. And here's where we get a glimpse into what these specific sins might be that Jude is confronting about the false teachers. First of all, they're hidden reefs. If you've spent much time on the water, you know you have to look out for things under the surface that you can't see. And a hidden reef will rip the bottom off a boat without even knowing it's there. That's what these false teachers are like. The water seems calm. It seems like it's going okay, but they will rip the bottom off the boat and sink it. And they come and they sit at the love feasts. That is the community, the fellowship meals that the church has. And this included oftentimes communion and then a full meal of fellowship. Verse 12, it says, and they feast with you without fear. Or I like how the NIV says it, without the slightest qualm. They don't care if they're going to influence all these other believers in the church negatively by sitting there at the feast with them. Appearing to be calm waters, appearing to be clear sailing. And then they're going to come right along and rip the bottoms off the boats. How dangerous it is for young believers to sit with them at these feasts and to begin to think that this is how a Christian ought to live without any moral guardrails. He also describes them as shepherds feeding themselves. We discussed this in some length last week, but I'll remind you, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah condemn this idea that the shepherds, those who are supposed to be leading the sheep, are in fact abusing the sheep and using them for their own gain. Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And listen to the similarities that are drawn between Jeremiah's condemnation of these shepherds and Jude's description of the false teachers. 
Jeremiah continues in verse 14. He says, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. And all of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. See the reference to sexual immorality, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then listen to this last one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. It's exactly what these false teachers are doing, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. Watch out if somebody comes to you teaching you visions of their own minds rather than words from the mouth of the Lord. Jude continues. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. If you see a cloud, you want it to rain, especially in an agricultural society. A waterless cloud is like saying you're going to give something and then not delivering. That's exactly what these false teachers were doing. They were all talk. And they were swept along by winds. They had no direction. They had no grounding. They're unstable. With a little bit of scrutiny, you can find inconsistencies. Because all they're doing is speaking whatever fits their occasion and whatever might feed their greed in the audience who's listening. And with a very similar image, Jude says, they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. If you see a tree with no fruit, it is not doing its job. It is a pointless fruit tree if it has no fruit. Especially in late autumn, it has failed. And Jude says it is twice dead. That refers to the false teachers and the fact that they will die twice. The physical death and the eternal spiritual death. And all this judgment mentioned will come to them in eternal punishment, the second death. To complete the image, Jude describes this tree pulled out of the ground, uprooted, completely dead. Lastly, he describes them as wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Some of us, when we hear waves of the sea, we think fun, we think surfing, we think uh, boogie boards. Waves of the sea had, did not carry that meaning back then. The sea was a place of chaos, a place of death. And so then these false teachers come from the place of death, and chaos, and they cast up the foam of their own shame. And that shame is literally shames, and it refers to their shameful deeds. And these shameful deeds just throw mud and mire up on all around it. And as wild waves, it seems that they act based on whatever temporary passion overwhelms them. And they have no choice but to go along with whatever they feel like they have to do. Those are the wild waves of the sea that are driving the actions of these false teachers. They are slaves to sin. They must do what their lusts tell them to do. And the results are not holiness or life or fruit, but instead mud and foam and wickedness and death. Lastly, they're described as wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Again, this word is the word for planets, wanderers. Those are those who are in error. They have been caught wandering and they deserve the punishment, the judgment that he describes in the next verse. Sounds very similar to the judgment that the angels deserve. It is the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. There's no beating around the bush here. I'm not going to try to soften this. Jude is describing hell. It's a place of eternal fire, as he says in verse 7, where the punishment will be like being burned eternally. 
Eternal destruction, never ending. And it's a place of darkness and gloom, as we see in verses 6 and verse 13. It's a place of unimaginable gloom and emotional, spiritual, and physical darkness. When people say there's going to be a party in hell, they miss it entirely. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, we read in 2 Thessalonians. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It is an eternal place because Jude tells us that this has been reserved forever. And this is consistent with what Jesus says in Mark 9. This is the place where the fire never goes out. What John says in Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. This is severe. Do you understand now why Jude is warning his people to stay away? Watch out for the false teachers, and I urge you to do the same. Be careful who you follow. Be careful who you listen to, and listen to those who contend for the faith, not those who speak from their dreams and their fancies. If you see a leader using his position or her position insincerely, or for greedy gain, or to throw off God's authority, do not follow. They are headed to destruction, to eternal death. Do not follow them there. Lastly, Jude gives us the case of the boasters, and this really is a type of summary. The case of the boasters in verses 14 through 16. Jude is sealing, last support here for his thesis, sealing the promised judgment. He's talked about how ungodly they are. And you remember in his thesis, he talks about this judgment that has been written about for them long ago. And here he refers to the book of First Enoch. Now, First Enoch was written just a few hundred years before the time of Jude. But it claims to have been written by somebody who lived over 2000 years, even before it was written. So it is a falsely attributed book. We cannot claim that it is in its whole a true book. It is not inspired, and it was never considered inspired. But as I said earlier, quoting from it is not entirely unlike Paul quoting some pagan philosophers or me quoting some popular literature just to make to drive home a point that the scriptures do make. Because the point that Jude quotes from Enoch is consistent with biblical revelation, and it is true. With the fog cleared, let's jump in and see what we learn from this Enoch quote. This serves as the final reiteration of the wickedness of these ungodly people and the judgment they deserve. Verse 14 says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here is a passage with undeniable biblical consistency. And Jude uses this as a description of the end game for these false teachers. Despite any apparent success they might have right now, they might seem to be gaining great followers. They might have showy uh, speeches. But their end game is destruction by God himself. So Jude turns then back to the people at hand and he says in verse 16, these people, 
are exactly those who will be judged. They are grumblers. They are malcontents. And they're grumbling and they're not content with God. Just like the Israelites in Korah were not content with God's authority, Moses. Just like the angels were discontent in their positions. Just like the sexually immoral people step out of God's good design for human sexuality. They're grumbling against God. He also says that they're following their own sinful desires. They use dreams to justify themselves, but they are still slave to sin and they are following their sinful desires. They have denied the reign of Christ. They're loud-mouthed boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. These would be the itinerant speakers, the preachers who go around and only preach to the rich people or only preach to the people who think like they do, who are going to give them the money that they want. These are the people who go out of their way to avoid the whole truth in order to itch what other people want to hear with their itching ears. And they are loudmouth boasters. They may have decent resumes with impressive experience and credentials. They probably put on a good show and they're probably really easy to listen to. Woe to them, Jude says. For in all the ways that they boast in themselves and teach lies, they stand against God. As they grumble against him and are discontent with where they are, God will stand against them on that judgment day. Ungodliness will be punished with unimaginable eternal fire and darkness and gloom and chains for eternity. That's what Jude is communicating to his people. Watch out. Have you noticed how much time Jude has spent? This is the entirety of the body of his letter. He has spent the whole time talking about sin and punishment. Sin and punishment. And he's trying to persuade his readers with strong language. He's persuading them away from these errors. We have to ask, is sin really that bad? Do we really need to avoid it that much? Yes. This passage should highlight for us the depth and the depravity and the darkness and the destitution and the repulsion and the infectiousness and the danger of ungodliness and of sin. Sin is not to be taken lightly. We have to start by looking at our own sin. We have to take inventory of our own hearts. You need to see your sin and it needs to drive you to despair. You need to be broken over what you've done. If you've not done this, ask the spirit to show you where you persist in sin. Let the evil of your heart have light exposing it. Come face to face with the shame and the fear and the regret of your sins. Try to feel the weight of the punishment for your sin. Consider what Jesus did to pay for it. Consider how much you deserve the eternal fire and darkness and gloom and sit there for a little bit. Be overwhelmed by how bad your sin is. Ungodliness is dangerous, dear brothers and sisters. But down there in that pit of despair, while you're sitting there in the mire. Down here where you are ashamed of every inch of your body and every passing thought of your mind. Right there, Christ meets you. Right there when you see how bad your sin is. When you realize how much you deserve to die. 
and how much you have been set against him, just like all these Old Testament examples. Jesus shows up with tenderness and warmth and an embrace that says, you are loved. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is true for anyone who looks to Christ in faith. This is not universally true of every being. This is true for those who see their sin, repent from it. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He meets you in that pit and he loves you. And then you can walk away unburdened by your sin. And instead you have the account of righteousness credited to you. And you can walk a new life by the Spirit. Praise God that He has called and loved His children. Praise God that He will keep His children to the end and multiply to them mercy and peace and love. So let us heed that warning. Let's beware of anyone who teaches or lives in any way contrary to this beautiful gospel. Let's pray. Gracious God, Almighty Savior, we thank you that you have loved us, even when we were still sinners. We are as bad as all those people. We are as bad as all these people, the false teachers. Our hearts are as wicked. We are as set against you and your authority. Would you help us to see that we deserve death and that you took it for us on the cross? Would we set our faith in Christ and not in our ability to become better people, not in our ability to climb out of this pit that we've dug, but to be carried by our Jesus who gave up his life for us to pay the penalty for our sin? Would that give us hope? Would we live in that comfort and that strength today and every day? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.